0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Bill Swainson. I'm one of the commissioning editors at Bloomsbury. And in 2004, it was my very great pleasure to take on Kate Colhoun's wonderful book, Taste, The History of Britain Through Its Cooking, which we published to warm reviews three years later. And Jenny Uglo, who, if you don't know, is not only a wonderful writer, but the doyen of non-fiction editors in London, said, Every page is packed with good things, historical and culinary, peppered with personalities, and salted with wit. And the American writer Mark Holansky, author of Cod and Salt, said, to understand Britain, or understand the central role of food in history, read this book. Tonight, it is a rare beast. There were only three cited in the conservatory, but I can tell you that a beautiful reprint will be here A week today, so do not despair. Bloomsbury also published Kate's wonderfully practical and inventive thrifty cookbook. And since then, she has had a sort of slight change of vocation and published the best selling history of a Victorian mystery, Mr. Briggs's Hat, the story of the first railway murder. Um, Lawrence Norfolk is the best-selling author, as I'm sure all of you know, of Lemprier's Dictionary, The Pope's Rhinoceros, and In the Shape of a Boar, three literary historical novels that have been translated into no less than 24 languages. He is one of our most inventive and rewarding and pleasurable novelists writing today. And earlier this autumn, my colleague, Alexandra Pringle, who's our editor-in-chief here, was lucky enough to publish his excellent new novel, John Satinell's Feast. The Telegraph called it a sweet and heady rush of reading pleasure, while just last weekend, A.S. Byatt chose it as one of her books of the year in The Guardian, describing it as a brilliant erudite tale of cookery and witchcraft, and then added very precisely, in
1: 1681. (laughs) One?
0: One of the very enjoyable things about publishing is how good books are often the inspiration, or as Falstaff might have said, the cause of other good books. And never more so, as these two brilliant authors will show as they talk about each other's books over the next hour and towards the end involve you in the discussion, never more than is the case with Taste and John Sassanel's Feast. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Kate Calhoun, and Lawrence Norfolk.
2: (laughs) Okay, um, that was a great intro, but intros from the throne are, I think, um, excessive. Straight in. A wave of noise broke over John, voices shouting, pots banging, pans clanging, knives and cleavers thudding on blocks, but he hardly heard the din. A great flood of aromas swamped the noise, thicker soup and foaming with flavours, powdery sugars and crystallised fruit, dank slabs of beef and boiling cabbage, sweating onions and steaming beets. Fronts of fresh baked bread rolled forward, then sweeter cakes. Behind the whiffs of roasting capons and braising bacon came the great smoke-blackened hams, which hung in the hearth. Fish was poaching in a savoury liquor, at once sweet and tart, its aromas braided in twirling spirals, A moment later, it was lost in the tangle of scents that rose from the other pots, pans and great steaming urns. The rich stew of smells and tastes reached into his memory to haul up dishes and platters. For a moment, John was back in the wood. His mother's voice was reciting the dishes and the spiced wine was settling like a balm in his stomach, banishing his cold and hunger. He closed his eyes and breathed in the scents, drawing them deeper and deeper we're going to triangulate the problem of English cuisine. Um, problem. Let's hope it's not a problem. I've just got back from a, um, a tour of the United States in which I had to utter the words English cuisine um, in various locations. Um, I, in the South, it was fine because they're very polite down there, but in the, in the North, it raised the odd titter, as if it were a contradiction in terms. Well, American
1: um, cuisine isn't? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I have to say it was the same in Germany, um, uh, reminding me that Schadenfreude is, of course, an English word. Um, um, so, um, so as I say, we're going to come at this problem from three directions: um, from the from the historical, which I think is going to give us our best chance of of of, of unearthing, of archeologing our the problem out of the uh, out of the earth of ignorance. Um, from the fictional, my own perspective, which is um, perhaps a um, more high risk procedure and then from the um, from the public your good selves at the end um, if you 'd like to ask some questions, perhaps we can between us uh, mount a three pronged attack on the on the problem of english cuisine um, i think i 'd like to start um, by by i mean it's um, uh, uh, my fire has slightly been stolen because I was going to Basically introduce Kate in the way that she's already been introduced. Um, I'll, I'll just add that um, her her book was the was the inspiration for mine. Um, the, there's a chapter in the middle. The, I won't do it. There's a chapter in the middle um, which um, uh, deals with the English Civil War, and that was the germ of the idea for my own book. Um, so I owe Kate it's in her book. it's it's, it's not the Go most
1: it's, it's the dullest chapter. It's the dullest everywhere. chapter in the book, isn't it? <laughs> um,
2: in, a, in a book about food, the, the chapter about the Civil War is not going to be a good chapter, as it? It's foraging and hedgerows and maybe a bit of rustling. Um, but um, but I, read th- I read this chapter and I thought to myself, um, and I found my own interest being engaged more and more as I, as I read on, and I realised that um, what it, all, it lacked, all it lacked was a character. All it, the only thing wrong with this particular chapter was that it wasn't in a novel and my own novel began from that point. I thought to myself, um, what if you were a cook? What if you had worked your way up through a, one of these 17th-century kitchens from the lowest level, from the, from the washing-up um, basin, which is where, where I began in the kitchen once, a long time ago? And you got to the, the, the top of the tree, and then within a year, all of that was swept mm-hmm. away by the English Civil War. And I thought to myself, what if you were a cook? What would you do? And the second thing I thought was, who would you be? Who would that cook be? And that was the beginning of my book. And without your book, I wouldn't have written my book, so thank you, Kate. <laughs> um, and I'm going to ask... I, um, um, the great advantage that I had, of course, in writing a novel was I could, in a sense, choose, w- choose when I wrote it. Um, my book begins in about 1625, and it, and it ends very precisely as A.S. Byatt, um, uh, through Bill, has just noted in 1681, not a year before or after. Um, but if you're writing the history of English food, you, you, you have to do the lot. I mean, you have, to, you have to begin at the very beginning and go through almost to the end, unless you're going to delimit it. It's a very, very different task. And I wanted to begin by asking you how you manage that vast time frame, which, of course, in a novel would become, well, not impossible, but extremely mm-hmm. difficult.
1: Uh- well, you decide by the time you get to the end of it that you're never going to do it again, pretty much. But, um, and, and there are many ways that you can chop it up because you can look at it thematically and, you can, and that structural kind of conundrum dogged me through the three years of researching it and writing it. But in the end, there is only one way to write a history of British cooking if you want to tell the story of the people behind the ideas because writing 2,000 years of ideas to, is, is actually quite dull. I mean, it's, it's not the kind of historian that I am. What I want to do... In, in the same way that you do, but you come at it through fiction, is to get at the people, the human stories. What did this mean? What did this food, these different plants, even this changing architecture, mean for the way that we put food on the table? And what does that say about us? So it had to be chronological. And then the only question is, where do you begin? Because, in fact, you asked me once, do you begin with pollen or do you begin with honey? Mm. Well, you could. I began with a storm in the middle of the 19th century in Orkney, which washed away, it was so, such a wild storm that it washed half of a sand dune away. And underneath the sand dune, there was a kitchen midden, which had dated back to 3400 BC, so the 4th century BC. And when they started, archaeologists, to look into it, and kitchen midden is basically the rubbish dump, so they could see what people ate, because they were the remains of food and also that had gone through people's studies, for want of a better way of putting it. But when archaeologists had finished looking at the midden, they actually began to uncover evidence of the houses and, in fact, a Stone Age village which had existed. And these very, very early homes had kitchens. They had hearths. They had chopping blocks. They had round discs of stone which had been sharpened to kind of skin animals. So you begin, I began, with the first human kitchen in Britain, in effect, which is fourth century.
2: You begin with a description, but then the the story sort of zooms forward from that point. And um, uh, how how do you you mount a great narrative as well, I think? I mean, how how does that move forward?
1: I, I think it has to just move. I mean, perhaps you only see the narrative thread of the whole history of British cooking when you've got to the end of it. Um, I'm not sure I was, and, and perhaps got to the end of it and got 10 years beyond it or seven years beyond it. I think there is only one narrative of British cooking which makes sense, which is that the reason that our culinary heritage hasn't stayed put and deep in the way that it has in Japan or in the Middle East or in France or Italy, the reason we don't have a an unchanging culinary tradition effectively, which is modulated but remained recognizable, is that we are an incredible island that has always looked out. We've looked out, we've we've been invaded by the Romans and the French, Mm -hmm. which has made a difference. And we've also colonized and invaded and created an empire. We've been magpies and we've pulled into ourselves all that glitters and all that's exciting in terms of tastes from all over the world to inform our monstrously changing, constantly changing culinary tradition. But, but what I can't do as a historian is I can read the, read the recipe books and I can read about how people lived and how people reacted to it. What you can't do is taste it. What you can't do is actually write about what it how people eat. And I notice in your book there are uh, yeah. all these amazing descriptions of cooking and food and the heat of the kitchen. But Nobody
2: eats. Well, the, the, yes. Well, <laughs> um, that's that's actually that that's true of all of my rivals, and I, I'm, I hope to, I hope to have moved the game on. But it, it's true. Um, I mean, I began, and um, and there's there's no problem about um, describing food, and there's there's any number of wonderful feasts in in, in literature. Um, Petronius's Satyricon has a great one where you know the the, the great the boar has a a smaller animal inside it, and a smaller, and a smaller, and a smaller, down through the birds, and down through the birds, and then to the tiny little birds, and then you cut them open, and live birds come out, and sausages fall out in place of guts, and so on and so forth. There's lots of that sort of thing. Um, J.K. Huisman's Boar has a wonderful um, dinner party in which everything is black, Um, all the food is black. But then you think about it, and you think, actually... I don't know how, would that actually have been a dinner party I would want to go to? Um, and he gets around this problem, of course, because I, I reread some of these, these, bu- these books to see um, how I should deal with the, the problem of food and what you do with it in a novel. And, um, and I've discovered what you've just said, that there are many, many um, descriptions of food, but very few of anyone doing any actual eating. Um, you get sort of, Paragraphs of description of beautiful jellies and cakes, and, the, and then all you get is, and they fell upon the dishes with gusto, and then when <laughs> I mean, you're on to the next, you're on to the next, um, and on to the next thing. So, um, and then I, I addressed this problem first, albeit unwittingly, in a radio program which I did with um, Howard Jacobson, who's um, <clears throat> he's always a good person to try and solve problems with, and um, and we we were on radio, whatever it was, I think it was three. It could only have been three. Um, and we were discussing things that you shouldn't do in a novel. Um, and um, our initial example was um, car chases. You should never attempt a car chase in a novel. Because it's like, you know, then the car wheeled up on its side, not to 45 degrees, but 60. So it didn't quite go over and it wobbled a bit. And then the curb came up. It was a bit of a dent in it. And, you know, exactly. So it's not going to work. And so car chases was an obvious one. And then, and then we quickly devolved um, um, to, of course, sex. Um, and, and I said, well, you could do bad sex, and he said, yeah, absolutely, and um, he said it better than that, and I'm not going to do another Howard Jacobson impression, not in this building, anyway, and, um, and, then, um, and then he said, but not good sex, and I thought, yes, you're right, actually, there's not, there's not many descriptions of good sex in, in, in novels, and then, and then he said, in fact, and I said, I, th- I said, actually, any kind of sensual experience is quite tricky to do, um, and then I started thinking about why that was, and the reason is, I think because there's nowhere for the writer to be. I mean, if I mean, it's obvious if you're sort of describing good sex. It's like why? It, it, it's like sort of like watching <laughs> pornography. You know, you think it's fine until you remember the bearded guy with the camera doing just <laughs> that up a little bit, down <laughs> and the whole thing evaporates. And um, and it, in a way, it's the same with describing people eating food. It's like where is the novelist? I mean, I mean, do you sort of lodge yourself in the upper molar? You know, it's sort of. I mean, there's between. Um, to, to, to sort of cut the comedy for a little bit, um, it's, it's an immediate experience. There's no gap between the, f- the, the sensation of the food going into the mouth and the person doing the experiencing. There's nowhere for the, for the writer to be. So um, when I came to this, so I, say, I agreed with Howard. I said, absolutely, we shouldn't do, never write a book about sort of sensuality. So then I went and wrote a historical novel about a love affair with food in it, obviously. Um, um, <coughs> in, <coughs> never um, take your own advice. Um, so um, then when I came to this book, the, the, I remembered that conversation, and of course, um, and, the, and the, the problem of describing how people eat um, presented itself to me, and I never really solved it, not directly. The, you, the English language is strangely, well, I thought at the beginning, strangely poverty-stricken in mm. words to do with taste. Once you've gone through, you know, tangy and salty and, and popped on the tongue, and, you know, there's a few phrases... Um, you're pretty much done. And you know, you've only described breakfast. You know, there's a lot more meals to go. Um, so um, <clears throat> in the end, I I think we're drifting off, off the point a little bit, but in the end I discovered that um, the food can only really be a metaphor. I mean, you, you can't describe it exactly and directly. It can only be a metaphor. And in this, in this um, book, it's a metaphor for the relationship between the person who does the cooking and the person who does the eating. Um, it's, a, it's a token. It's a gift. And that, I think, is the true significance of, mm. of food. I've, we've we've got, right to, we got to the conclusion. Well, now we're compa- We've got to the conclusion. No. We? It's like, that's no good. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have compa- to row back, back a little bit. But that is the significance. It's that, it's that someone creates the food, I mean, with their hands, and, and cooks it and gives it to someone, and that someone puts it in their mouth, they chew it, mm. they swallow it. It goes through them. Part of it becomes them. It's an incredibly intimate act, and that's so the food is a token of that intimacy. Um, and so to describe it is is a sort of bit, a bit like trying to describe sex. It's something that you can't really do in the novel, um, you can only do it metaphorically. So you can only express what it means, which is that it means the relationship between one person and another. And once I figured that out and relaxed about it, then it worked a bit better.
1: There's one there's one exception <coughs> to, to describing food, and um, or at least for me, and that's ice cream. Mm. because um, we have no taste at, at zero degrees. Okay? We can't taste anything. And actually, you can't smell anything that's at zero degrees either. Mm. And when ice cream was first invented in the Restoration period, so straight after the Civil War, it was, um, and throughout the 18th century, it was a sort of Versailles thing. It was very much based on scents, Japan, and coffee, tea, very, very scent, scented, perfumed kind of foods. And part of the reason, and part of the reason it was this extraordinary experience, because nobody had eaten cold food before, partly because nobody had access to ice in that way, and partly because food was always cooked, so that's what you did, um, was that as, when you put ice cream into your mouth, first of all, it was an extraordinary thing, because that was new, that coldness. But then it began to melt, and as it began to melt, you began to taste it. But before you began to taste it, you began to smell it. So actually ice cream in its earliest form was an olfactory pleasure before it Mm. was a tongue (coughs) pleasure and it it is actually, for me, the only foodstuff that you can describe in that extraordinary kind of multi-sensual way Mm. and you don't think about it like that because we all eat ice creams all the time now, they're kind of chuck away experience, but next time you have an ice cream or you have the chance to have a rose water ice cream or a lavender ice cream or a ginger one, just note the fact that you will smell it before you taste it and it's I mean, of course, all food and all eating is about smelling as well. But this is that you. S- well, actually, now I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because, of course, you smell food when you walk into a kitchen. Don't yeah, well, you anyway do. Anyway, it's different because it's cold. Anyway, the
2: post-restoration <laughs> period was obviously that that was kind of relief after the English Civil yeah. War period for, for you. But um, there, there, there are obviously must be periods which are more difficult to write about than than, than other periods, and there must be periods which are. More fascinating than, than others, and you have to deal with them all. I mean, I found, I mean, uh, for me, the, the 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 arc of the story, the fact that it gets more engaging and then it drops a bit, and then you know that sort of lumpiness to the experience, of course, is 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 part and parcel of what a novel is about. Mm. There are events, mm. but um, in in a history of cooking, you have to deal in a in a way even-handedly. You have to give every every Period—a kind of a, a sort of good shake of the whip. person. I think it were. I
1: think that civil war chapter was quite short. <laughs> but you know, war <coughs> war is always hard to write about. first and second world wars were easier. Um, Did yeah. you have a fave? Did I have a fave? Yeah. Well, two. First all right. of all, the bit that you think is going to be hardest—the Anglo Saxons, because mm. you know it's the Dark Ages. That's what we're told, isn't it? There's it no is. recipe books. But so much of our language, of course, pre Norman um, influence and therefore quite a lot of our Celtic kind of food, the butter-based rather than oil-based, mm. the milk-based rather than... Those words and the animals that were here, um, Not obviously mutton is French, but pig, um, all of those words are Anglo-Saxon. So actually you come at Anglo-Saxon history and at Anglo-Saxon food through the language. Um, a, a wife is a bread-giver um, or bread-maker. A husband is a, is a bread-giver. Um, And there are all sorts of... What it shows is what you were talking about before, this contract that people have between themselves, companionship with bread, the whole point of sitting down and eating as something which reinforces social bonds Mm. and and creates rules, is absolutely rooted in Anglo-Saxon language. And then in French, in Norman language, mutton and beef and all of those sorts of things, you can see how language reflects absolutely our history. But then beyond that, I kind of just love Elizabethan... Mm-hmm. I love it. And I think what's so interesting about, for any of you who've read John Satinel's Feast, this idea that the Civil War is a caesura where all of those bonds are shattered. And it's also a pivotal moment between a kind of what we might think of as the old world and the modern world from a scientific kind of point of view. It's also a period when food, so everything that John Satinell learns from Scovel, the, ma- the mad master cook, mm-hmm. is about hospitality, it's about the Great Hall, it's about feeding the whole home where you live. And, of course, the last Great Hall to be built in England was Henry VIII, Hampton Court. Um, And it was already outdated, and yet, of course, they continued to be used. But throughout the Elizabethan period Mm. and up to the Civil War, people are retreating into more and more private dining rooms. You're not feeding your whole household anymore. Mm. So, So what Saturnal catches is not just a disappearing world, but a world where food is a narrative
2: mm, it was um, an apogee it was, a, it, was a, it was a high point. I mean I remember reading reading your book and then and then you know other researches into the same period and and, and clearly something new was going on um, through the sixteenth century um, and 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 this is what I regaled the recalcitrant Americans with as well, which was that for um, us um, we, we had for the first time a, a period of prolonged peace um, so the conditions were ripe for the uh, for the aristocracy to spend their money on things other than ten foot walls to re, you know, repulse the cannons of their neighbours, and, um, and and therefore there was there was enough there was there were funds available to to stock and and indeed build these these huge kitchens and these huge palaces in the first place. Um, and at the same time, it was a, it was a very happy moment um, geographically, I think, for English cuisine because um, there were three different influences coming together at once, which is something that you chart very clearly in the book, um, which, which were that there was, a, there was an old English tradition of, um, sort of puddings and roasts and, and things like that, which we're very familiar with. And there was a, there was a tradition which came from um, North Africa and the eastern end of the Mediterranean through the, from the Crusaders, which was um, a cuisine which we would recognize as Moroccan, I suppose, sort of lamb with apricots and saffron and cumin things like that. There were new spices coming in as well, but not cuisines with them. They, they were just a means to an end. And then the third prong of the attack, well, it's a night of three-pronged attacks tonight, isn't it? And the third prong of the, of the I wouldn't say attack, it's a sort of happy invasion, um, was the, uh, what's, what was termed, what we would know as the continental prong, um, which we think of as French, but which was, of course, Italian. Um, the Mary de Medici brought her Italian cooks with her when she went Um, to the court in France because the French cookery was so dreadful. And
1: there's a fourth, Ah. gardening, 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 of course, yeah, there was gardening as well. All of those um, refugees from uh, the Low Countries who came over with their salads and their asparaguses, and so Elizabethan cooking starts to turn away from the Moroccan spices. There were trends, Jerusalem artichokes were suddenly very popular, go figure. Look at the still yeah. lives. Look at still lives of Elizabethan, and it's apart from um, lobster and um, oysters, it's all asparagus, artichokes. It's the tender tips of things, broom yeah. buds, capers, green, green gardening. This is the era of, and actually, this is you know like what's she? Sorry, what's John's mother called? Uh, oh,
2: uh, John Saxon's mother. The, well, Your... the bellica figure in the in the uh, in the in the book. Um, harks back to the, um, to the Garden of Eden and a, and a, and a vision of sort of plenitude um, and a, a vision that, that anything can be, could be grown anywhere um, yeah. and that the fruit exists to be picked from the tree, that man, uh, the, the, post, um, the post-Edenic contract with um, a vengeful God was that man henceforth should earn his bread by the sweat of his toil and that women should give birth, give birth in pain and, and this was a, this was a, a payment for the, the disobedience of picking that first apple. Um, there, but behind that, behind that theological um, uh, construction, there's of course a, there's a vision of a garden where everything grew quite freely, and where people could wander quite freely and, and eat whenever they wanted, um, which is, is preserved in, in folk traditions like the land of Cocaine in, in English in English tradition and Das um, Schlaraff.
1: Scharaffenland in the again
2: in uh, the German tradition where everyone sort of there's many pictures of, of sort of happy peasants with their red hats lying around drunk and, and they get up the next morning just do it again there's no, and then, no and penalty. It's this sort
1: penalty of, but it's also the era of the of, of the great herbals you know John Gerard's great herbal and then uh, which is at the end of the 1500s and then the middle of your in your period um, mm-hmm. John Parkinson's and the age where people wanted to garden. And, and if you were rich, that's what you did. You put your money into hot walls and pineapple beds and kind of proto-glass houses before they were really glass houses. And, yes, yes. And, 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 you, and you, you made your garden productive, and it this was, was about... M-
2: yes, it was a happy moment. Nectarines were very common um, up, to about 17, up to about 1740, and they don't reappear for mm. no, decades and decades after the Civil War. Mm. It takes a long time. Some things just disappear. Um, if anyone knows what a sweet lemon is, please let see me afterwards. There's, they're quite common in recipes up until 1642, never seen again. So, some, some things just go, and they, they seem to never come back. Um, the no, uh, yes, anyway.
1: Um, so, yeah, so gar- there's sorry. kind of gardening too. And yeah. I wondered what, I mean, so there's sources. There's masses and masses of sources suddenly in your period. Yes. And, and sort of from the beginning of the printed book, whatever, whenever the first one was, 15, when, does anyone know, 1514, 15... 14, 17-something, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so you, get, you very quickly get, um, get cookbooks as well as prayer books. Very, very quickly. Uh, and they're incredibly valuable. But then by your period, you've got lots and lots of cookbooks for the, the new f- middle classes. F-
2: suddenly there's a... The, well, it's, it, it, I mean, it becomes more standardised the further you go on. I mean, the real joy is in the early period, I think, when, when there were cookbooks, but no one knew quite how to go about it. I mean, so they were all, they're all rather different. Um,
1: well, there's certainly no temperature control. No timing.
2: No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, no, well, well accepted, of, course, of course there was. There was. There was um, um, the boils were distinguished by being sort of roll, rolling or seething, or, and um, yeah. temperatures were, um, uh, I remember, water uh, hot so that you can put your hand in it, but only for a moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you, is...
1: and you tested the heat of your oven, your bread oven, in effect, by throwing a piece of paper in, and if it went black immediately, obviously, it was too hot, and if it went brown slowly and curled up, then it was just right for your bread. And so you put different things in according to... And you, and you measured the time it took by no, the time it took to walk around a field, but never said how big the field was, or the time it took to, say, a miserere.
2: Or an ave maria slowly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yes, I mean, of course, they did have very accurate timers, and I remember reading that for the first time, and the, the whole of the 17th century shifting slightly slowly Slightly at that moment, I was thinking, "Yeah, of course, of course, they had accurate timekeeping. Of course, they had accurate clocks. temperature keeping. It just wasn't familiar to us because they did things which were they did things habitually over and over again, and these things always took the same time. So it was that time. They didn't know exactly in seconds how long that was. But if if if, if you stuck a hard if you stuck an egg in water for that long and it came out hard boiled, when it was then it was long enough to hard boil an egg. So that was good enough, so. as
1: long as it worked. I suppose isn't it? it's experience and passing it on. Yes." Um,
2: um, some of the, I mean, some of the, so some of the cookbooks were, um, the later ones were Robert May and uh, were great big compendiums and we would recognize them as, as sort of the Mrs. Beaton of, the, of their age. But some of the earlier ones were much more eccentric. Do um, um, you, you want to do a, fav- a favorite one? I'm, you mustn't pinch mine, uh, but Well, you can pinch? Can iron. I? Yes, you can. No. Go on. My
1: favourite from that period, a little bit later, right. is John Evelyn, who, Evelyn the Great oh, yes, Courtier, yeah, yeah. wonderful. Who um, was a great gardener, of course, wrote treatises on gardening. Was a right-hand man of Second Charles in the Restoration. The, yeah, the Second Charles. Yes. Um, and, but he wrote the very first book on salads, yes. and this is in an era when people thought salads and uncooked vegetables were still pretty dangerous. So they were still kind of mm. hanging around. You know, science hasn't gone. I mean, salads became quite big, so they don't think yeah. they're that dangerous. But they'd certainly not eat a tomato. That was still a garden plant, right up until the end of the 19th century. Well, we know
2: why. We know why they wouldn't eat the tomatoes. Because they were thought to be a cure Poison. for you know, thought to be a oh. cure for venereal disease. Well, so, they, so, yeah, so, so, no one, so no one would admit to eating a tomato. I'm sure there were plenty they would never admit to eating a tomato, but they did eat them on yeah. the slide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm uh, sure
1: there were plenty of people who ate them. And they and they grew them for them. ornamental
2: reasons. But anyway, John
1: Evelyn wrote a treatise <laughs> on salads, and he says in it many, many lovely things. He he likes to use a Delft bowl because it's because it's cool, and he likes to put the best oil and the best vinegar into the bottom of it. He couldn't bear garlic; just so, you know, like no, it no, got anywhere near garlic. garlic, it smelt like he didn't like truffles, didn't like anything that he thought smelt like farts. Um, <laughs> but he but he said that you pick the. Very much like we do now, actually, that you pick the tenderest, smallest leaves of a number of different salad plants and you let them fall like music. And when you think that he's living in a period of Baroque music, where everything's kaleidoscopic, where everything is multi layered, mm-hmm. um, it all starts to kind of fall into place the Delft bowl, the Baroque music, the beginning of eating salads because science has kind of shown that they don't kill you in the way that they yes. Um, so I love that. What yes.
2: about you? Um, yeah, that, I mean, I c- we can stay on acid. it's called acetaria, which means vinegariness, I think. <laughs> um, so it's, it's things that, are, that go well with vinegariness. Yes. And um, I mean, he's... I, I, count, I counted the number of um, um, sort of hedgerow plants that he lists. He lists 77 different hedgerow plants, things like betony and and, and
1: Do you have too much time on your hands? <laughs> I did, I did the time. <laughs> okay. um, this is what novelists can do. They can sit and kind of count. There are 77 hedgerow blocks. Well, it's
2: better than pushing a semicolon around the page <laughs> all, all, all morning, which is what we do otherwise. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, that's, that's a wonderful book. Uh, my favourite, I'm, I'm torn. I think, um, I think I'm going to go with Eleanor Fetter Place, actually. And I would usually go with Sir Kenelm Digby um, and his closet, comma, opened. Um, at this point, but Eleanor Fetterplace was, um, was a lady who was, um, uh, she lived in Gloucestershire in, um, in the 1580s, uh, I think, and, um, and she, wrote, she, she wrote a manuscript, and it was simply um, a collection of recipes that worked. It wasn't meant to be very fancy. Gloucestershire was not um, on the court circuit. The king was not going to come and call. Um, it was as primitive then as it is now. Um, I, I grew up just around the corner, so it's okay to say that, I think. And, um, and, um, and, she, and uh, I remember reading um, her recipe for a fruit tart, which proceeds more or less conventionally, although with some, with some twists and turns. And then it comes to, the, um, the, to the, the sugar syrup, which she says is the best sugar syrup for the top of this particular um, fruit tart. And she says, um, uh, she begins with, um, Take your sugar, which came in a block, Um, Break it into pieces, break the pieces into granules, grind the granules in a quern down to a powder, fine powder. Uh, Next, um, take a a pig's bladder, um, wash out the pig's bladder before we go any further, wash out the pig's bladder, um, inflate it, take one goose quill, snip the ends off the goose quill, stick the goose quill into the pig's bladder, insert the fine powdered sugar through the goose quill into the pig's bladder, and then add water to the correct consistency. Then suspend the inflated sugar water filled pig's bladder in a basin of simmering water for 24 hours until the scum from the sugar rises to the top at which point you can make a pinhole in the bottom of the pig's bladder and, and draw off the very fine sugar syrup, which is perfect for your fruit tart. And then, and that's, and that's just the first ingredient, you know. So, um, so I was, I was pretty impressed. I was quite impressed with her. And that's down in Gloucestershire. I mean, that's not even you know. It's not that's not Hampton Court. And
1: that was thing. very common. I mean, those books are really remarkable because they were handed down. From, by women. Um, yes, uh, right, yes. And it was added you, to you, over you the years. You would start yes. your book when you got married, but you'd be given recipes from your mother and your grandmother and maybe even their old books. And they were split half and half, so the front will be recipes to impress your neighbours in a rapidly growing middle class. So mm-hmm. you may not have impressed royalty, but you would have had to impress squirearchy. And, um, and at the back is surgery, or shakurgery as it was called. So it's how to make your own medicine. Everything from how to get rid of freckles... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to um, um, to how to cure piles, to much much more kind but of. But which of course
2: is now is now um, it's an idea which I mean you are what you eat. I mean it's this is I mean this is literally true, and it's an idea which is becoming more and more we're, we're becoming more and more habituated to, and it's um and, and of, of course surgery comes next to mm. diet because um, if if you, if you if you the theory was and it's not a bad theory if you eat exactly the right things um, your your body will acclimate to the to the circumstances in which it finds itself. And this is, I think, broadly true. Um, I mean, some of the things which they recommend are you know, n- not correct, but, um, but the, the, the general idea is right. I mean, chirurgy uh, mm. does, you know, lie next to diet. Um, it should be noted, I mean, before we get too dewy-eyed about all this, that it was all incredibly hard work. Um, and and, and um, I mean, some of the things which we take for granted obviously did not pertain, i.e. electricity. Um, if anyone's tried to whisk cream with birch twigs, you'll realise that it's a, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough procedure. Mm. Um, bread was baked three times a three no, not three times, there were three different types of bread baked at least once a day. There'd be manchet bread, which is white, um, what we would call white bread, but which is actually probably a light wholemeal bread. And then maslin bread, which is a mixture with rye. That's for the next tier down, the sort of upper servants. And then down at the bottom was, I think, horse bread, really. Or, Various other kinds of bread. Acorn ne- bread, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, all sort of mostly rye, if you're lucky. Some the point being,
1: because the more you refine the flour and the more you refine it, the less you have. So mm. the whiter it is, the more expensive it is Absolutely. and therefore it's only served to the...
2: And um, I mean, tough work, kneading um, bread. I mean, and you, it's not like you know kneading bread. You have got, you've got to be that big to knead. So well, a trough. You had probably. a trough. Yeah, they, these troughs were six feet long and they were about this wide and they were about this deep and the kneading was done in... Mm. in those. So and
1: cakes, you know, the, the whole kind of British baking tradition, which really begins at the beginning of the 1600s. There's another manuscript book by a woman called Rebecca Price, and she, mm. she talks about, I mean, the quantities are, are extraordinary, 20 pounds of weight for one cake, for one cake. That's mm-hmm. butter, sugar, everything else. And they were, first of all, raised by ale from the top of beer, but this period, they start oh, to be raised yes. by egg whites for the first time. And she says, you know, you have to beat it. Twenty pounds, twenty pounds weight of stuff in a great big bowl that you're holding, and with the birch twigs. She says, beat it extremely for an hour or more. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> I can't even be bothered to kind of beat my omelette for more than a, a no, minute. No, no, no. The even fork. watching the
2: dough hook is quite so, tiring.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, <coughs> so yeah, the, the the and then after all of that, the cleaning with. Ash and lye, and the fact that your hands kind of fell apart, and mm-hmm. and that was even if you had running water in your kitchen. Which uh, you know, if the farmer hadn't come along or the gardener and said, actually, we need that water for outside. You can't have it for the kitchen yeah, right
2: yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, some of the some of these recipes are slightly deceptive. I remember coming across uh, uh, um, recipes which routinely said, take thirty eggs, and you know, and you think thirty? Oh, oh, come on.
1: And then you, yeah, you that's look like at the river cafe
2: cook. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, then, and then, but then finally I worked out, I mean, the eggs at that time were, they're that big. A hen's egg was that big. If you look at, I mean, the, our, the hens that we have, there's these monstrous things mm. which are bred to, you know, pop, pop out Marks and Spencer's measured eggs, you know, at the drop of a hat. And I mean, anyone who's like kept chickens knows it doesn't really work like that. You know, most of the eggs are small. And these were really small. I mean, bantams weigh eggs. A bantam is only about that big. It's about the size of a pigeon egg. So 30 was sort of, okay, so there's that too. Exactly. Was,
1: yeah, yeah. But also you're talking about a period, and I think this is really important for John Sathenel's Feast, you're talking about a period when cooking is not just about hard work and it's not just about drawing in all of the new ingredients that are coming and the new gardening and the French influences and the whatever. It's not just about that. It's still, it's changing, it's a pivotal moment. It's still about telling a story and communicating. It's still, it's still talking about um, a society which is... Where literacy is growing, but it's harkening back still to a society which is sort of not illiterate, but sort of uh, literacy is 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 is, well, is, yeah. is is not certainly women aren't.
2: Literate. It, well, it was and vi- consequently
1: it was food tells a story.
2: It was visually literate. I mean, it was yes, it was a literate it and it was a very literate society, but not not necessarily in, in words. I mean, it, that was rising as you say, and, and through the Puritan movement, not least because you yeah. know, everyone was expected to read their own Bible, and so the, the Puritan, oddly, the Puritan women were sometimes better educated than they're, than they're supposedly... But the subtlety Lawrence. that
1: John Satinall makes, the, this Mm-mm. great, there's this amazing, amazing section in Lawrence's novel that, where things start to come back together, and this is about love, it's about the creation of something, a piece, um, which is made of many separate parts, each of which requires extraordinary skill and patience and love and dedication. And that does harken back to an age which required food to be coloured and jewelled and yeah, gilded. And
2: deceptive. And funny and yes, deceptive yes.
1: And, and, uh, and to be symbolic mm. and to make you laugh perhaps and to take you by surprise. Yeah. Some of
2: these things were, were, were monstrous, weren't yes. they? There's, there's one that I think it kicks off um, Robert May's book where it's certainly an anachronism and it's put there. To, Robert May was writing, his book was published in the 1660s and these, these things... I don't think really grace tables in the 1660s. Yeah. And it, I think it starts off with it's a stag I believe. It's mostly made of marzipan and paste and things. And then and then the guests were meant to throw was it sugar arrows at it and then Fake blood would come out, and uh, I, and it went on from there. I mean, it, that wasn't. The it's worst the four
1: it. and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie moment. <laughs> it's <laughs> it you know, dreadful, You're going to cut it? into it, and something's going to yeah. take you by surprise. It's going to be a bird or a frog or yeah. something's going to be. out. It's leak a shockingly
2: out. unappetizing prospect, anyway. Which um, has
1: now become a kind of birthday gimmick. You know, the yeah. the, the 1960s woman who kind of bursts out, out of the and cake her, and yes. sings "Happy Birthday, Mr. President" is a kind of subtlety, <laughs> subtlety, um, you know, from the kind of medieval or yeah this um, um
2: so there w- there was that there was that side of it and um I mean when I was w- I was writing when I was writing this book I became aware that the that there was there could be no one way of writing about the food in it, it that it had to change as the, as the book went on because the 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 book begins and and this is an arc that I think that you follow that that English cuisine has followed in a, in a sense as well that um uh, the book begins in a village, so that the cookery is perforce simple, and, uh, and therefore the language which describes it must be elemental and simple because it, could, it couldn 't be otherwise and Then, as he enters the kitchens, then the, the language which, dis, which is used to describe those dishes must perforce become more sophisticated and more cosmopolitan because it, it, it echoes the cookery, and then at the end, it becomes simple it becomes simple again.
1: Thing about you, though, is you're very—that's very disingenuous. Because, and I don't know how many of you have read this novel. There's nothing really that simple about the crafting of the language, yeah. and um, it's not—it doesn't feel overwrought, and it doesn't feel um, ever self-conscious. But it is wrought, and your descriptions. Uh, anyone who's read the book, there's a there's a there's a recurring recurring image of the twisting of smells and effect and flavors. Um, like the steam that kind of rises and I I wonder I just have to ask you since you're talking about language how how conscious that was or whether that's just kind of part of the world that you were immersed in
2: um it wasn't it it wasn't conscious and I don't I don't think anyway I wasn't I mean you you mentioned that to me we're we're pals by the way we know each other from before and um and you mentioned that to me earlier and I I said oh did I and um um, and clearly I did Mm. uh and I and I put my hand up to that um um, but the, I, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure how to how to answer. I mean, the, the, the when I was when I was growing up, the um, I grew up in the West Country where the book is set, and um, and I was aware, I suppose, from an early age that the food that I ate came from somewhere. I mean, not just a supermarket. We lived. We had three acres of land, and um, I was talking about chickens and bantams and stuff. It was my job to look after the chickens. Um, or I didn't it wasn't my job to look after them. It was my job to get them from wherever they were in our three acre field and to get there were ten of them and to herd them into the chicken coop and shut the door, which sounds a simple procedure and um, and should have been, um, but it's not, because you can get nine chickens into a chicken coop really easily, but that last one and when you're chasing the last one, you know, one of the others decides it would quite like to come out and have a last quick peck around the field. So this was quite an involved um, Operation. So I, I was oh, quite okay with the chickens, and um, um, and at the same time we had uh, we had sheep as well. Um, oh, we for time because I don't want to digress too much. Are we all right. I
1: don't know what time we're meant to finish.
2: I don't know what time. No one else. On.
1: Me? We're,
2: fine. we're fine. Okay. Okay. We also had sheep, mm-hmm. and um, the sheep were but they weren't real sheep. They were pantomime sheep because um, in we lived outside Bath, and they had every year they had the pantomime. Um, they had Bo Peep, and um, that sheep have, you have to be somewhere when they're not at the theatre. So um, they, we lent the, our field to the sheep. So, um, uh, so there are five of them. And um, I'm not sure how relevant this is. When I'm, I'm ploughing on. Um, and there were five of them. And there was also a woodshed. Um, the woodshed didn't have any wood in it. Um, it was about big enough for two sheep. So it took a while for the sheep to discover the woodshed, but um, a couple of weeks, not too bright sheep. Um, but then they did, and uh, one got in the woodshed, and, and sheep obviously liked to follow each other, so one in wasn't going to ever, it wasn't that it was never going to be the end of the story, so two got in, and that was fine, because the woodshed comfortably held two, except that the three outside, was one started to wonder what was so good about being inside, so a third sheep got in the woodshed, at which point the woodshed was pretty cramped, I would imagine, um, I wasn't in there myself, and, um, and then there, that left, but then there was a very unhappy situation and the unhappy situation was that there were more sheep in the woodshed than outside it. So the sheep outside it were desperately trying to get inside the woodshed and one of them managed to do that. Um, So there were now four sheep and you could see the woodshed start to swell slightly (laughs) Um, and the the last sheep, I mean poor thing, was frantic trying to get inside the woodshed because it was on its own which is a state that no sheep finds bearable and it was butting its way to get in, and, it, and eventually it did get in, and as it got in, the woodshed sort of exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all ran off in different directions and then regathered as if nothing had happened. So, um, I um, had a pet
1: sheep when I was growing up, and it used to... It, yeah, and it, we also had a henhouse, and one of the henhouses was quite small, not a proper big one, a small one, and my sheep was called Rafferty because I grew up in Ireland, and he used to go to sleep with two legs of one side of the roof of the hen house, and the other two legs over the other side. Oh. He thought he was a chicken, but yeah, he didn't yeah. like being on his own. No, they so. don't
2: like being on their own. Anyway, and You so see,
1: you pay your money, and you come and you get all sorts <laughs> of great <laughs> history.
2: Um, so, so he had sheep as well, and, um, and my mother grew... Um, uh, vegetables, I mean, and corn on the cob and uh, cucumbers, of which, uh, as everyone knows, you never get one cucumber. You either get no cucumbers or you get a million cucumbers. So there were some years where we got a million cucumbers and we lived on them for about two months, and there were other years where we didn't get any. Those, those were good Thank years. God, yeah. Those were good years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <coughs> so I, I was keenly aware of the fact that um, food came from somewhere, and what you ate was dependent on where that was. Um, uh, we ate the eggs. We didn't eat the chickens; they were they were too tough to do anything with once um, they were, you know, once they'd had it. And um, and the sheep we didn't eat because they were obviously doing they were had theatrical careers to keep getting (laughs) on with. But um, and we also we also had a cow which um, which which once got into the vegetable patch after I'd been into like sort out the chickens, but had left the door open so the cow anyway that wasn't a good day either. Um, So anyway, the point of all this was that um, there's this there was this. Behind every meal that I described, there was this narrative of where it came from. Um, I, I knew that um, even in a, in a broad sense that someone somewhere had grown this or caused it to be grown or foraged it or found it or it had grown or been killed or captured. And we also had game. I mean, it it's just down in the West Country. There was always someone popping around, would you like a pheasant? You know, which, and the real cost of a pheasant, as anyone knows, is pulling the feathers off and gutting it. It's not, nothing to do with catching the damn thing. Mm. You can catch them by hand. Um, so um, it, all, this, all this food um, came with its own story. All food, to me, is narrative. Mm. It's, all, it's already got a story behind it. And that's been um, cut off. By um, modern food producers um, for profit. I mean, they 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 chop that narrative off um, because we can't bear it. I mean, we can't we, we can't bear you know the idea of um, the the real story behind, of course, where cheap food comes from is 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 unbearable to most people. You couldn't look. You couldn't watch it. Yeah, but the, the
1: fact that we have cheap food is because is because, as you say, it's um un, it's unbearable. The fact that it happens is because we are no longer living by the sources of our food. So cities. And they begin in this period too. You know, Huge, huge um, amounts of geese and, and other animals are driven to London and the other cities that are starting mm-hmm, to form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people still do kind of understand. They still understand where food comes from through the 17th century. And even the 18th century when new vegetables like cauliflower, my favourite thing, are introduced in, this, in the 18th century. <laughs> um, but, but as soon as you get industrialisation, and especially industrialisation with no precedent because we're the first country to do it, you have hundreds of thousands of people flooding out of the country and into the cities to go and work in the mills or whatever. So that lots of different things happen. Mm. They're divorced from the sources of their food. They no longer know what a turnip looks like. They no longer know where a cow should live. Mm. But they're also divorced from that kind of wider, what we were talking about before, the wider family that through which skills are passed down. So mm-hmm. it's not really surprising that... That, that when the Americans say, you know, English cuisine, kind of, pa, what they're really thinking of is the English cuisine that began in the 19th century, not before, and actually, I would say not now either, but um, what, what was yes, lost sorry, for that. for 150 years in this kind of overcooked grey mush that became Victorian food. Mm-hmm. But actually, what while we did get back an appreciation of Mediterranean vegetables and fresh foods and all of those sorts of things through Elizabeth David and then other cooks like Claudia Rodin and Marcella Hazan, and mm. all of that lot that were pioneering in the 60s and 70s. What we never really got back to, and we're only just beginning to, is the kind of welfare angle that we may be still divorced from the sources of our food, but we are beginning through Jamie or Hugh or God knows who else to understand the cost of intensive
2: mm-hmm. kind of
1: production. And I think
2: hand in hand with that, um, with that earlier view that, um, th- that food is just something you buy in a plastic packet and put in the microwave is. Is, is, a, is hand in hand goes a certain historical blindness, which I was making fun of earlier, it's such that um, the view of, his, of English, the history of English cuisine is of um, uh, a, a pot, you know, bubbling somewhere with a huge red faced man stirring it with a vast spoon and sheep's heads rolling around, or the idea of, of some cauldron over a fire and everything is just chucked in and, and that's, that's the food, you spoon it out three times a day and that's, that, you know, that's supper. Um, and that's, um, that's always been untrue. In fact, I mean, even I mean, quite humble cookery, as much as we know of it, in even in the 17th, early 17th century. I mean, there was a pot in um, in the in the peasant hut, and it did sit over a simmering fire. In the pot, there was there would have been liquid in the bottom, uh, wooden slats over the over the liquid, um, hanging down from um, staves above would have been um, pe- possibly pieces of meat or vegetables um, strung up in muslin to gent to steam for hours and hours and hours. And those juices would go into the broth underneath, and then other things would be placed on the wooden slats to steam as well. It was, it was a pot, but it was an intricate cookery system mm-hmm. as well. And um, the use of um, fresh herbs was um, very, wi- very, very widespread, mm-hmm. and the use of varied ingredients as well. There was a, a, a one statistic, which I've, I've been quoting ad nauseam to anyone who will listen, which I came across towards the end of the, research, of the research for this book, and it comes from Joan Thirsk, who's the uh, uh, agricultural historian. It's not mine. And, and she, did, she did a survey. Um, I think she was working in the 1980s. And she came up with this statistic that uh, the average person in the early 17th century ate 225 different kinds of food in, a, in, an, in an average year. Um, now, 95% of our diet comes from just 18. So the the notion that they had a very monotonous diet and it was all just sort of oats and something that, that's all wrong. Um, it's 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 us that've got the monotonous diet, or rather those of us who can't afford the the more um, uh, esoteric ingredients. So, yeah, I'm
1: just wondering.
2: If I think we. we d- I, yeah, I think yeah. We. I think our two prongs of. of of like prongs, really. I, mean that, well, I
1: can think of lots more <coughs> prongs, but I'm just—I'm kind of aware that there may be people who want to. Yes, indeed, indeed. Questions uh, yeah,
2: like. or indeed, get a glass of wine. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's. Should we should we draw it to to a close? Well,
1: we'll keep, we might. You know, one question might spark off. Yes, Because uh, yes, yes, yes. there is all sorts of other stuff to talk about. But
2: yeah. is
0: that alright? Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. Okay. Are there, if, if there are any questions, there are a, there are a question. <laughs>
0: What Colin Spencer points out in his history of English food is the terrible thing that happened to the culinary tradition with the enclosures from the 18th century on, and uniquely in this country as compared to the rest of Europe, families were evicted from their houses. They, many of the peasants ended up as, as uh, slave labor, in effect, in, in, the, in the Industrial Re- Revolution. They no longer had kitchens mm. in which mothers could teach their daughters how to cook. Yeah. And that one act in itself was yeah. enough to totally destroy a rich tradition of centuries. Mm.
2: Has, everyone, has everyone heard that? Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay, good.
1: And of course that, that's kind of true, um, but it's always been true too that you know whether you look at research, which I'm sure um, Colin also writes about, there was a, a very famous study done by the Fabian Group in 1910 into women who lived in Vauxhall, and uh, yes, yeah, so in um, the city. Uh, what and what this uh, study um, resulted in was an understanding that their income, m- the majority of it was spent on on clothing and also putting money into your funeral fund so that if somebody in the family died, you could afford to bury them. Um, And there was a certain amount of food which was normally given to the breadwinner, to the man. The man would be the only one who got meat. Everybody else by that stage would have kind of bread and jam. But the the real problem was that even when do-gooders came along with oats and, you know, quite cheap and nourishing ingredients, they didn't have either money for fuel or cooking equipment. And that's certainly a lot... That's also written about in the 17th century, you know, in London, um, that people live in tenements, squashed in <coughs> constantly. I mean, the cities have a lot to answer for. And, of course, enclosure does. But it's, a mu- it's, it's bigger than just enclosure. And, and, of course, the history of poor people... And this is the real difficulty of writing a history of food, is that history is... The history we know about is pretty much the history that's written down. And it's written down by people who could write and who were rich and had pens and paper. You, so in order for someone like me, a social historian, to to get to grips with not just the richest people. You have to look elsewhere, and you have to try to... You have to look at pictures, paintings. You have to try to find letters, if you can, um, or reportage of other people who've seen the way people live. Um, And you have to kind of extrapolate from it. But that that non-availability of kitchen equipment, it's very expensive, yeah? And and, and until now, we live in a very throwaway (laughs) culture. even, even in kind of Iron Age Britain, a cauldron would have been the greatest status symbol because it was made from 17 pieces of metal riveted together, which was expensive. It wasn't something that you threw away. <coughs> um, and even down in Bath, at Corsalis or whatever, you have all sorts of tablets, cursed tablets thrown into the water by the Romans, um, and especially by Roman wives, although one can't really understand why they were in the kitchen because they had <coughs> slaves to do it. But there are curse tablets saying, you know, a curse be on the person who stole my favourite terracotta pot because it was an expensive, you know, Well, that was throwaway to a certain extent, it, it wasn't. So, so that has been, my point is, the point about, <coughs> it's, you know, it's, it's not just about the food that you can afford, it's about whether you can afford the fuel and the, and the equipment to cook it in. Mm. Has been something right from prehistory oh. on.
2: Anyone
1: else? I had a question. It's also about food property, but it's more general. Throughout history, it seems to be the same. The rich eat what they like, the poor get the dregs. From your research and all the work you've done, what do you think would make the difference to to break that system? Now? Well, the, the problem that we have now is that we spend less on food as a proportion of our income than we have ever done at any point in history. So although it's terribly worrying to us all that food prices are going up and up and up, Actually, we're still spending less on food. So when we spent a third of our income on food, we honoured it. We had to because it, you couldn't afford to chuck it out, right? And now, we've, as you all know, endless statistics, and I've lobbied about it enough, You know, we throw away a third of everything we buy. So one in every three bags that we bring back from the supermarket or whatever just goes in the bin without being undone. And there are lots and lots of different reasons for that. We produce globally despite population growth, despite fluctuating weather patterns, despite all the other threats, war and so on, we do produce plenty of food for the global population. But we are astonishingly greedy and we waste it. And that creates all sorts of other environmental problems, methane problems, sludge problems, poisoning problems, landfill, all of that kind of thing. So what do I think would, would, would make a difference? I think if we all stopped wasting food it, there would be, a f- food would be, we wouldn't be getting through as much. Um, we would have to upskill because you have to learn what to do with leftovers. You have to incorporate a whole repertoire of leftovers in, like you did in the old days. I think that would make more difference than anything. And I don't understand why that mess, I mean, you know, I'm not the only one who's written about it ad infinitum for the last four years. I don't get it. I don't get it. Why, do you, why throw something away? Why not put it in the freezer if you're going out and you can't? You know, that would make more difference than anything.
0: Uh, it's got,
1: I get a bit of a bee in my bonnet yeah. when I talk about that. I'm sorry. Um, this is a question for Lawrence. Okay. Um, in John Satin's feast, you described some really beautiful dishes. I wondered if you'd actually cooked any of those yourself or tried any of them, some more exotic okay. ones. Um,
2: thank you for that question. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I i i attempted at the, the the um there are there are thirteen recipes in the book which which preface each chapter and they they purport to be the um the recipes taken from the the final recipe book of, of john Sassnell. um they vary from roasted rabbit which is relatively handleable to um this vast sort of multi layered tart which is given to Charles the i disastrously at first and then not um and um well, I, I can keep talking for as long as I like, but the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but he is a really amazing cook. I'm, I, I, I'm just,
2: I'm just not good enough. I mean, the, the, um, it's it's hard to it's hard to stress how um, how difficult the cuisine of the time, the the, court, the sort of courtly cuisine, was to cook. Mm. It was um, it was it was it was very very sophisticated, and it, and like a, a two star or three star Michelin um, kitchen. Um, which I've at least observed. Um, you need a lot of people doing the, exactly the right thing at the right time to do it. You need a whole kitchen to produce the, these sorts of meals. And, um, and so, so, no, I haven't. I wish I could, but I, but I haven't. Um, there is a slight problem. I mean, my, my other um, answer to this is, no, I can't because I don't have the same oven that they had. <laughs> but that, that's not it. That's
1: or, indeed, <laughs> or indeed, you know, some of the <laughs> ingredients. You know, this is still a period yeah. where they loved... Um, things that smelt very earthy so uh, during this period there's a lot of cooking with musk and ambergris so well, musk is now because it comes from the anus of a musk deer and uh, they're very rare apparently uh, is is outlawed
0: no. and
1: ambergris you don't really find floating around in the sea that often not, anymore. Uh, not, not, um, not, and no. so that actually to get I have eaten some of those cakes made with those things to get the Flavour of seventeenth-century food. Some of the recipes are actually almost impossible because there are certain. But some are not,
2: and I haven't cooked those either. So
1: (laughs) it's a bit like kind of needing silphium from the Roman period. Yes, Silphium, which used to be more valuable than gold, and which stopped the kind of Roman treasury. No one really knows what it was, though. No, it's
2: a bit like Mm. asphodel. Anyone else? Um,
0: You you mentioned earlier about the, the titters. amongst the audience from German and American... uh, Yes,
2: I mean, uh, the idea of English cuisine, yes. Basically, but what they're saying is that British people can't cook.
0: Or or that's perception.
2: Well, they've come here and they've... I suppose they've... I mean, there's a sort of hangover from the 1970s. I mean, I I grew up in the 1970s, and I... I mean, it's a hard decade to defend. Sure, no, (coughs) absolutely. But what, what, what I wanted to ask is... Earlier, you mentioned you talked about sort of grey sludge of Victorian kitchens or Victorian cooking. Can you identify a point where maybe? We lost that ability to to what, cook, or, or, and, and is that does that go hand in hand? We disagree With the on this. But you go first. Well, the yeah, yeah that we Lauren, Laurence thinks culture. we lost
1: it in the 18th century, and I don't. No, no, agree no, because, I don't think. Oh, I think we looked,
2: no 1742.
1: Oh bugger that! You know, <laughs> we wouldn't, 16, sorry, but we wouldn't have trifle. We wouldn't have all sorts of. We wouldn't have ice cream. We wouldn't have all sorts of amazing things that came after that um, period. But I think the Industrial Revolution, the, the, the flowing to the cities and off the land, away from extended families, all of that has a lot to do with it.
2: But, but many other countries in the world have, have gone through the yeah, same Yeah, but they process. did it after
1: us, okay? So we had no precedent. So we hadn't learned. We made all the mistakes, including a massive food mistake. And also, I think it absolutely has to do with the fact that m- most other cuisines which have remained kind of constant, whether Japanese or Middle Eastern or French, let's say, to choose three have often been have not been that rarefied they 've often been about turnips i 'm not talking about oat cuisine i 'm talking about being able to cook with the vegetables from the land and a little bit of fish and a little bit of meat um, that 's what characterizes all of those those cuisines um, and there there wasn 't either a wholesale they 've all obviously industrialized but not as fast or as furiously they 've also had more of a kind of let's say a, a kind of more of a more of a Peasant cuisine to start with, and then the most important thing is they're not islands. So we were part Japan's of what. an what island. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that is an is island. Like Sorry, yeah, they're oh, all islands. Is. They're all islands. Iceland's But the islands. They're, not, they're, not, they're not. They're not. They're not. They're not. They haven't had the history that we've had as an island of being both invaded and having an empire. So they have not thrown the baby out with the bathwater, which is sort of what we did by by going for everything that was bright and changing so constantly. We didn't have that backbone of unchanging cuisine onto which we just put a few new flavors every now and then. We kept evolving, and inevitably, I think, went through 150 odd years of pretty bad food. I mean, the French used to write, French visitors to England during the 18th century, well, and way before, used to write about the quality of English produce, and most particularly the meat, because it was fattened on our beautiful pastures with our lush green grass. It was of an extraordinary quality and it was cooked red. The English cuisine was all about cooking rare meat, whereas French cooking, French beef in the 18th century was cooked right to the middle. And then there was this kind of flipping. Um, So you say, can you identify a moment? I think from enclosure up to post, up to... well, Elizabeth David really kind of begins before the Second World War. But then of course the problem is that there are no ingredients, so all that new love affair with peppers and aubergines and the markets of the Mediterranean gets lost. Uh, but I think I think from enclosure end of the 18th century to just after the First World War is the kind of low point. And of course the 70s weren't great, but there were good things about the 70s. Rachel Carson was a pretty amazing woman and mm. um, and...
0: Yeah, and mean, Claudia Roden. I meant things and to eat in the 70s. But
1: well, they were, it was there. I, rem- I, mean, I grew up in the 70s too, and I, I, yes, had angel delight every now and then, but I also <laughs> lived on a farm and we ate everything that we made ourselves. So, everything, everything I ate was I mean, fresh. And when McDonald's
2: don- m- came, everyone was really pleased because it was going to raise the standards, <laughs> and, and it did. And it did. I mean, that's shocking.
1: I, I also think that, that yeah. what you have to make a distinction between is the kind of domestic c- cooking which didn't always go to pot, and what was available in in restaurants and pubs and and supermarkets, uh, and, and, supermarkets and roadside cafes. And the microwave has an awful lot to answer for because without a microwave, which is a chance byproduct of war technology, in effect. Um, without the microwave, you don't get ready meals, you don't get frozen food, you don't get any of that stuff. Um, and so there's all sorts of, you know, technological kind of stuff happening. But I think domestically, we've never completely lost it. And everyone who's stuck with fresh ingredients and, and been bothered to have a few skills and hasn't bought too many cookbooks has probably stuck on the right <laughs> motorway. The problem is gastroporn, to a certain extent. Yeah.
0: And without the food processor, you wouldn't have New York cuisine
1: yeah then they were also hungry. <laughs> you know triumph of style over substance. But you know there's, there's always been, and in fact there's always been, and it's, it, it's very interesting in English cooking history, this break between professional cooking, which is male um, and often French, um, and domestic cooking, which is female and about pastry and puddings and those sorts of things. And there has always been a split which was absolutely. Um, became very extreme during the 18th century.
2: Maybe one, one more perhaps. Sorry, there. there are lots of yeah.
1: questions. Oh, go on, please say. Well, I was only just going to say that about the Industrial Revolution in other countries, France, Germany, Italy, so, and they had the Industrial Revolution, but it was up there in that little bit in the north, and it didn't really affect the rest of the country. So yeah. the rest yes. of the country's cooking, I'm told, I wasn't there at the time, and <laughs> went on pretty much as normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen here, Mm. because we're smaller. Mm. It sucked people from the Mm. south of the north. I think that's a very good point. Mm. Mm. Forspon technique. Mm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That lady, I think, is one.
0: Yes?
1: I was just wondering, I mean, if you turned on a TV set in England, you would think that it's a nation obsessed with food, because we've got so many food programs. What do you think this obsession with food programs, and MasterChef, and Mm. celebrity (laughs) cooking, like, why is there this huge, dichotomy between um, yeah, obsession with food as a, as a media and a, a mm. form of entertainment and actually doing it. Well, I have a view, but do you have a view?
2: Um, I think it's always been there. I mean, we yeah. mentioned Elizabeth David earlier, which is a very, very co- popular cookbook filled with ingredients which were not available. Um, it was post-war. You couldn't cook mm. any of these things. You couldn't you know, get hold of a of a of a hair. Well, she didn't you sell know. very
1: many copies of those books. I mean, they were very well, verified. Um, we, they sell now, but
2: um, so so. But there was an interest. No, there no. was there was an interest in them at the time, and mm. um, and um, so I, I think it's I think it's always been there as a kind of aspirational thing. I, as an as, as an aspiration, not an aspirational thing. Um, and um, uh, it's uh, it's. I think it began at least as something that we 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 like to think that we want to do, and um, and in the same way that. It's, it's sort of like armchair travelling, but sort of armchair cooking, and um, and we all like to think of ourselves as sort of halfway decent cooks. No one wants, wants to think, oh, I'm a bad cook, um, and that these, and I think it, it sort of, it, to a degree, peddles that fantasy. But I think the byproduct is that people think more about food and think more about what they're going to do with it, and um, and I think that's basically good, uh, for, from all of them. I mean, a lot of them are just along for the ride, but that's all right. It doesn't matter. Anyone else?
1: I, I think food's sure. always been about showing off. It's always been about yeah, showing to off. a degree, Look, yeah. you know, satiric and the, you know, mm. um, and court cooking. Um, it's it's been about um, power yeah. um, a lot, and it's not only that. It's also about seduction and it's about companionship and conviviality and all sorts of narratives, but it's <coughs> always, in some way, linked to power, in my view, whether who has and who hasn't, and how do you, you know. Um, so I, I think that element of showing off just goes really well with food in a way that it doesn't go so well with clothes. I mean, Trini and Susanna did it for a while, but it didn't last, did it? And food does. But these people are watching these show-off programmes but they're not actually cooking them necessarily, or...? I don't think they were cooking when they watched Fanny Craddock, either. I think they just watched her because she was so unhinged. And she was... <laughs> so it's, it's, it's entertainment. It's It's entertainment, really yeah. Yeah, and some, people, and some people will take those ideas and show off with them. Yeah. You know. But I think there is a statistic, isn't there, that you know, only one or two recipes in every new glossy cookbook are actually normally cooked. You, know, you find two you like and you just keep going back to them. Hmm.
2: Um, yeah, I think two is good going, actually. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, f- food is to a degree entertainment, though. I mean, for instance, we, we eat, we don't feed... I mean, we don't. We don't. Chuck, we could chuck all the ingredients in a pot, boil them, and blend them, and spoon it in. And we don't do that. We arrange them, you know, in a in a particular way, even at the most basic level. Um, so we we our our cookery, even at a sort of basic level, is a kind of artistry, um, and um, and and so you know, it's, it's natural for for the, the the urge to display and to um, and to. Uh, uh, go, go beyond simply the idea that we've, we need nourishment. It's, I, th- I think that aesthetic impulse is, is behind the, the phenomenon that you're talking about to a degree. And I think it always has been. I mean, we do that too. If you put the carrots on one side and the green beans on the other and the sausage in the middle, you know, rather than just like chuck them all on, it, it's, you know, you're arranging them. Why, why are you doing that back? They taste the same. It's, it's the same impulse, I think. It's aesthetic. We're all artists in a way.
1: I just want you to join me in thanking Kate and Lawrence
2: for, I think, a fascinating evening.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well thank, you thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.